Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Let's finish our journey through the prophetic book of Isaiah by looking at chapter 64 through 66. Chapter 64 continues a lament. In verse 1, he begs God to tear open the heavens and come down. This is a picture of an angry entrance. Rip open heaven and come down. Let the mountains quake and the nations tremble before you. In verse 4 is a verse that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 2, nine. God has done so much more than we can ever know, but we'll mess up even what God is doing if we do not use our spiritual eyes and ears to look at things. And we develop this ability to see with spiritual eyes and ears as we grow in Christ. He enables us, God enables us to see things from a spiritual viewpoint through the mind of Christ when we grow in our relationship and learn to submit to the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, he says that we've all become like someone who is unclean. Touching unclean things contaminated you, and you didn't take contamination into the presence of God. So he's talking about we've all become unclean in some way. Um, take a look at Romans 3.10, Ecclesiastes 7.20, Psalm 14, uh, 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, 1 through 3. The reference here to a filthy cloth in verse 6 is a reference to menstrual rags. These would have been old strips of fabric that the women used when they were on their time of the month. They certainly would have been unclean. Most men and not a few women would have been disgusted by them. In there, And so he says what we see is the very best of us is still pretty disgusting when compared to God. And we fade like leaves and our iniquities become like wind blowing us away from God's presence and from the blessing of God. And we have to fight against that. Verse 7 returns to this idea that no one is calling on God. Um, No one is seeking out God. And yet in verse 8, it says that God is our creator, our protector, our nurturer, our father. And we see more clay and potter language that has been very common in the prophetic books. Take a look at Jeremiah 18 and 19. And here in the book of Isaiah, back in chapters 29, 41, and 45, This lament, if you look at it closely, vacillates between penitence and a demand, an audacious demand that God act. This was very common in Psalms of Lament, this idea that we're in great distress and you almost beg and get pretty audacious with insistence of what God should do. Moving into chapter 65, the prophet here insists that God was righteous and right to judge and punish. Um, Verses 1 and 2, that no one is calling upon God and even offers of help are rejected. 
Um, we have a rebellious nature and a fierce independence that provokes and angers God, our assurance that we know better than God and that we can do whatever we want to do and that God cannot or will not do anything about it. Verses 3 and 4 um, give us a list of some pagan practices. One of those is sitting in tombs, um, which is a form of necromancy, going to the graveyard to speak with the dead. And then in verse 4, eating swine, eating the flesh of swine. We know that the Jewish people did not eat pig, did not eat all that good stuff that we love in there. But it was considered an, an abomination. Um, but it's engaging in the pagan practices that go along with it. And in verse 5, talking about arrogance and pride, false righteousness that abounds, um, take a look at 1 Samuel 2.3, Proverbs 11.2, and Proverbs 16.18. Verse 7 gives us um, what we deserve, and then in verse 9, it comes back and talks about what we will receive. What we deserve is to have the full measure of our punishment measured into our laps, full payment for what we have done. But what we get instead is a remnant. We get saved. We get a descendant or a descendants from Jacob, um, inheritors from the tribe of Judah out of the holy mountain in verse 9. So some of the manuscripts say descendants, singular, some say descendants, plural. So it could be talking about a remnant that gets saved after all of this, or it can also be a reference to Jesus, the descendant out of Israel, out of the tribe of, of Judah, a descendant of David who um, becomes our forefather, shows us a new way in the faith. Remember that prophetic statements can have more than one application. It can be both. Verse 13 differentiates those who are faithful from those who are not. This um, We hear this echoed in Matthew 25 with the parable of the sheep and the goats. And then in verse 16 brings us back around um, to worship acts, blessing, um, and faithfulness there. Verses 17 through 25 talk about a glorious new creation. This is one of the most poetic visions of the world as God intends it to be. Almost every phrase has become part of our vocabulary of praise and expectation in hymns and liturgy. In verse 17, we talk about a new heaven and a new earth. In verse 19, no more weeping, no more distress. Verse 20, a long, healthy life, um, that a hundred years will become common, um, that people who are a hundred years old are still youthful. Verses 21 through 23, security and permanence. We're able to harvest what we have sown, so we're still going to be there, and we're able to enjoy the fruit of our labor. In verse 24, it says that since we don't call on him, He'll call on us. Before we even call, He will be there with the answer. God is present. God is immediate. And right there where we need Him will be present with us. God's, the place where God lives will be close to where we are living and residing. We will live together. Verse 25, we have this radical 
peace. It's really a picture of a new Eden as the world returning to what it was created to be. And then in chapter 66, we move into the final chapter of the book of Isaiah. This final chapter is a collection of oracles, mostly addressing the issue of true or false worship. In verses 1 through 4, it very shockingly suggests that the returning Jews are striving to rebuild the temple, um, but God doesn't have much regard for this effort. The throne of God is no longer the ark in the temple. The ark was God's footstool, and the royals kept kept official important documents where they put their feet, so right their presence, that so they had to be constantly aware of their responsibility as well as a sign of their authority. The documents were right there. Take a look at Psalm 132.7. But the prophet now says that this is no longer the abode of God. God now sits in heaven and uses earth, all of earth, as his footstool. His authority is over all of the earth. God is more concerned with humility and respect than he is with the glory of a physical earthly temple. In verses 3 and 4, there is no combining religious actions from various gods. We have to get completely in our faith or we are not in it at all. Um, Even appropriate acts of worship are rendered meaningless if they are coupled with idolatrous ones. In other words, you can't come to church on Sunday now and worship and pray and lift holy hands in song or prayer, listen to a word, um, sing hymns with vigor. All that doesn't mean anything if we go out of there and we live like heathens the rest of the week. He's saying live like the people of God rather than just going through the motions. Very common theme with all of the prophets. Verses 5 through 13 says the Lord vindicates Zion. Um, Her own people may hate her, having no regard or respect um, for her. So let's talk about what Zion is for just a minute. Zion was a small portion of the city of Jerusalem. It was part of the very original earliest part, but it's another name that's really kind of synonymous with Jerusalem and the temple of the center. And so here in these verses, we really have a picture of Zion as mother. And we have a portrait of Zion in labor, um, delivering a son. We have wombs. We have nursing. Um, so Zion nurtures. Zion raises them, um, spends joyful time playing with them in verse 12 there. Um, they have been dandled or bounced on her knee, and she provides comfort to them in there. Jerusalem raises us, and we will be comforted in Zion. So God's people will come back from their punishment. They will once again find comfort and nurture. They'll once again um, be nursed and raised um, like in a nursery, like in an incubator um, with God. Verses 14 through 24, the Lord's enemy now will receive judgment. Um, Fire was a common judgment element um, when 
a force came in and conquered an area, they tended to to burn a lot of it, particularly important structures, they would burn them down. A whirlwind was a sudden destructive element. We have that here as well. Think of it in terms of like a tornado might be for us. Remember that Elijah was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot that was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. In verse 17, this is probably a reference to an initiatory rite of the heathen mystery cults that was associated with the god Baal and Ashtoreth, um, possibly also to Tammuz, um, which refers um, to gardens and um, eating of swine flesh that would also have been associated with the god Tammuz, T-A-M-M, So we're talking about elements of pagan worship here in verse 17, and the one at the center of the garden would be the idol. In verses 18 and 19, um, that there will be a sign among them. There are references here to um, several other nations and references that we may not always see very clearly. My translation says put Tarshish and put P-U-T. Some of the the manuscripts say P-U-L. This is not found anywhere else as a name for a nation. It is probably referring to African peoples on the eastern coast of northern Africa. Um, There are some other spellings, which may be variant spellings, that are spelled P-H-I-N-T or P-H-E-T or P-H-U-T. This word, put, P-H-U-T, is found commonly with the word lewd, um, L-U-D. Take a look at Ezekiel 27.10 and 35. Lewd is also mentioned in Ezekiel 27.10 and 37.5, Genesis 10.13 and Jeremiah 46.9. They were skilled archers from the area of Ethiopia and Libya. Tubal is mentioned in Ezekiel twenty-seven thirteen, Ezekiel 38, verses 2 and 3, and Ezekiel 39, 1. They lived on the shores of the Black Sea. Um, they were tribes of Scythian um, extraction, so they were Scythians. And then it also mentions Javon. Um, some of the translations will say Iona, Ionia. Um, go back and take a look at Genesis 10, verse 2. Um, they carried on an active slave trade with Tyre, um, with Tabal, and with Meshach in there. Um, but the sign among them here may be a supernatural kind of terror that sets into all these peoples for opposing God. But it may, and I think most likely refers to the witness that comes from that remnant, the people that are saved, the fact that God's people just cannot seem to be stamped out. They always keep coming back, and the witness of this remnant to the goodness of God will cause others to see God. Verse 20 has the word mencha. Okay, let me get my words straight. Verse 20 says, They shall bring all of your kindred from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring a grain offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. 
So he's talking about people coming back. They're going to bring my people back to their holy lands. This is the mencha, which is the bloodless meat offering that is mentioned in Leviticus 2, verses 1 and 2. The returning exiles are the most acceptable offering that can be brought. Take a look at Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 10, and Romans fifteen sixteen. Um, it's this supernatural way of God's people returning and saying, but returning you there is the best thing they can do. That is their offering to God and realization that they have been opposing God and should not. In verse 21, the priests are beyond the Levites now. They are from the nations. The priests have always been limited to the tribe of Levites, but now there are going to be priests from the nations. So from those who return and from other tribes of Israel, he will raise up priests. Verse 23, the Israelites were obligated to pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the three great feasts. They will now pilgrimage more frequently, and that pilgrimage will be more universal. In other words, all the time, from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh will come to worship before me, says the Lord. Um, They will come in every month, then they will come every week. Um, They will be there all of the time, not just the Jews, but all of the nations. So the Gentiles are now folded in to the blessings and the worship that goes up to God. The worship becomes constant, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. In other words, praise will rise to God from God's people all the time because our lives literally become our worship as we live in God's presence. We live through God's Holy Spirit and we are witnesses and ambassadors for God everywhere. In order to worship continually, there needs to be a perpetual Sabbath And that can only be realized in the new Jerusalem, in the new Eden, when all is as it's supposed to be is the only way that we are living in Sabbath rest. Take a look at Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27, and Hebrew 4, 9, as well as Zechariah 14, 16, um, where he has a very similar prophecy. In verse 24, each major section ends with balance, with a restoration between um, blessing and condemnation, restoration and blessing for the people of God and condemnation of the wicked who just will not live as God wants them to. Take a look at Joel 3.12 and Zechariah 14.12, Zechariah 12.2-9 and 14.2-4. There is a vision of this great battle of God Um, perhaps back from verses 15 and 16, um, with the slain filling the valleys around Jerusalem, especially the valley of Jehoshaphat. Um, The worms are portrayed here as feasting on the dead and that unquenchable fire, which is very foundational to our ideas about hell. Jesus references the valley of Gehenna outside of Jerusalem, the trash dump, Um, where fires were kept burning to burn away the trash. And we see that here. This is why Jesus would have picked up that kind of language. Take a look at Mark chapter 9, verses 44 through 48, um, 
which applies this, Jesus applies this to the everlasting punishment of the wicked in Gehenna or the valley out, valley of Hinnon outside of Jerusalem. And so with this beautiful picture of restoration and the return of the people and all being as God intended, there's also this strong condemnation for those who simply will not live as God intends. I keep saying the very worst thing is to be cut off from God because you simply will not embrace living how God wants us to live, which is in peace and harmony, um, with justice, with righteousness. It All of that is born out of love. God created out of love. God keeps redeeming us out of love. And eventually, in the end, there will be a world that is as God wants it to be. We call that heaven or the afterlife that is ruled entirely by love. And for those who simply do not want to be there, who refuse to be there, it is also an equally unpleasant picture. So as we wrap up the book of Isaiah, let's go back and talk about the servant songs that we saw. There were four or possibly five. The first four were found in chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, chapter 49, verses 1 through 6, chapter 50, verses 4 through 7, and chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 12. If those first four are all of the servant songs, then they are all located in Second Isaiah. The vision while they are in exile, while they are experiencing the worst of times, is this vision of the suffering servant of the people of Israel who will one day a remnant will return. They will not always suffer. And this vision that Jesus becomes our suffering servant who once and for all makes everything right. I see a very clear picture of Jesus when I look at those. There is also possibly one more. In chapter 61, verses 1 through 3, this may be the fifth servant song. This would place it in third Isaiah, or after the people have returned from exile, but are still in the rebuilding state. Um, this In this in chapter 61, verses 1 through 3, the word servant never actually appears. Um, this is widely debated among modern scholars as to whether or not this is a servant song. But this is the passage that Jesus reads in the synagogue um, and announces his ministry. He says, this applies to me there. So I've I treat it as a fifth servant song because it is Jesus on, it's his own servant song about himself. It's where he applies all of that to himself. Isaiah differs from Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who they are the three major writing prophets, the ones who primarily wrote their prophecies down. Isaiah differs from them. Isaiah's prophetic ministry blends foretelling or seeing far into the future and forthtelling, speaking truth to a sinful people here and now. Um, so Isaiah speaks not only to the people at the time, but he is looking 
very far forward in what he is prophesying. Jeremiah and Ezekiel don't do quite as much of this as Isaiah does. As we've said before, Isaiah is the longest of the prophetic books um, in three parts. It's really three books all out of the Isaiah tradition. Um, so we have first Isaiah, second Isaiah, and third Isaiah speaking um, an impending judgment comfort during exile, and the return and ultimate redemption of God's people. Um, And we too now have been grafted into that story, and that concludes the longest of the prophetic books in our Bible.